0: Coming up on the Mission
1: Readiness Podcast.
2: We've got to help families find and acquire affordable and high quality child care, child care, period. Whether we're talking about teacher salaries compared to other things or whether we're talking about child care workers compared to McDonald's workers, the fact of the matter is we somehow in this nation want to turn our back on the people that are most important to the development of our kids in the development of the future. And I I don't understand that, I never
0: will. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, Mission Readiness National Director, Ben Goodman. Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm Ben Goodman, National Director, and this week we're going to try something a little bit different on the podcast. Uh, last month, I had the opportunity to join former Maine Adjutant General Bill Libby on a podcast uh, hosted by Brigadier General Rob Carmichael called Mainly Matters. The folks at Mainly Matters were gracious enough to allow us to uh, rebroadcast that conversation right here, and it focuses on Uh, the unique challenges to uh, accessing high-quality early care and education in my home state of Maine. Uh, You may not know it, but the Census Bureau actually considers Maine to be America's most rural state. So when we think about access challenges and teacher retention issues in rural areas, uh, there's no better place to look for challenges and opportunities than Maine. Um, So for something completely different this week, let's get to that uh, conversation from Mainly Matters.
1: Hi, this is Rob Carmichael with another Mainly Matters podcast, and today I'm excited we're going to talk about the need for greater access to child care and access to early childhood education in Maine and the long-term benefits these programs can make on our state. And I'm very pleased to have with me today two leaders involved that are working very, very hard to educate and advocate for more funding and support and to generate awareness for this important need. First with us, uh, Ben Goodman, who's the National Director of Mission Readiness. Uh, He leads a team that works with over 700 retired admirals and generals who advocate for evidence-based solutions and that help uh, children grow to be healthy, productive citizens. And we'll talk more about that. Ben is a graduate of UMaine and He's worked on Capitol Hill where he spent four years as the lead health and veterans policy advisor to Congressman Mike Michoud of Maine. So Ben, welcome with us, I appreciate you being here. Thank, thank you so much, uh, thrilled to be here. And, and also I'm really pleased to, uh, my old boss, not old boss, I'm not gonna call him an old boss, and he's, he's asked me to call him Bill, which is very difficult to do, but we have with us Major General Retired Bill Libby, He's a Vietnam veteran, a long, distinguished military career, which, uh, if I had time, I'd go through in detail, which uh, I'm sure he wouldn't uh, like me to do today. But he, he culminated with his last assignment as the Commissioner of Defense Veterans and Emergency Management and the Adjutant General of the Maine National Guard under Governors Baldacci and LePage. As I said, General Libby was also my boss when I served as his Assistant Adjutant General, and the chief of staff of the Maine Army National Guard. He's been a great mentor, great leader for me, and helped me significantly throughout my career. So, General Libby Bill, it's great to have you here this morning.
2: It's good to be here, Rob. Uh, you you fail to mention I'm also a graduate of the University of Maine. Does it make all three of us Black Bears?
1: <laughs> that that uh, it it does, uh, and I did forget to, to mention that you also have a master's degree in education, and I think that'll. Certainly come into play here as you talk about uh, childhood education. I'm sure this morning Uh, we are our three main graduates, and you and I both are UMaine football alums. I think uh, a little bit years apart, but uh, back in the day, as they say, (laughs) my kids say, "Back in the dark ages when we were wearing leather helmets." (laughs) I I wasn't wearing leather helmets, but they seem to uh, think I did. Well, it's great to have you both here. Today we're we're going to talk about a really important topic, and uh, we, I couldn't have two better people to talk about it. Let's start with first, Ben. If you could talk a little bit about mission readiness and what you, a little bit more about what you do there and what the organization's all about. Absolutely. Well, mission readiness is a
0: nonpartisan nonprofit organization of um, more than seven hundred and fifty. Now we're closing in on eight hundred retired admirals and generals, including 30 in Maine, who united out of shared concern that um, a staggering 71% of young Americans are unable to serve in uniform. And that's that's due to poor education, obesity, or a record of crime or drug abuse. Um, so it's 71% nationally. And, and sadly, Maine isn't really that far ahead of the national average at, at about a 68% rate of ineligibility. So, you know, you think about it, that seven out of every 10 kids who could walk into the recruiting station in Biddeford or Bangor or Presque Isle and be turned away because they don't meet the minimum requirements for, for service. That's obviously a a, a threat to our military readiness, but as I know we'll get into um, those trends mean a, a lot more for, for society as well. So, um, for more than a decade, Mission Readiness members have worked in Augusta and Washington, D.C., and in state capitals around the country. We have members in all 50 states to, to advocate for programs and policies that help prepare kids for success, mitigate all those barriers that keep them from serving in the military if they choose, um, or, or going on to lead uh, pr- productive lives. So we're talking about initiatives like access to high-quality early care and education, um, and efforts to to help kids lead healthier lives like Healthy school food and and access to, to physical education. Um, and I'll finally just say that um, mission readiness is is part of an umbrella organization called Council for a Strong America. Um, it's a parent organization, brings leaders together uh, from different um, respected constituency groups here. So in addition to mission readiness, Maine is a very active chapter of fight crime, invest in kids, um, group of police chiefs and sheriffs that work on these same issues and ready nation uh, business leaders who kind of come at it from the the perspective of our our future workforce.
1: Yeah, that's outstanding. It's a, it's certainly a broad mission. And, and I know that uh, there is a, other than the military, there's certainly another focus that we'll talk more about the broad outreach of this organization. And, and Bill, you've been involved in Mission Readiness how long?
2: Uh, I got involved when I was the uh, Adjutant General, Rob, uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, I was approached by Kim Russell, uh, who I think was the state director at the time for Mission Readiness. And, and my first question to Kim was, uh, you know, why would the Adjutant General of Maine be concerned at all about early childhood education and child care? Uh, And when I heard those staggering statistics that Ben just shared with us, about 7 out of 10 of the demographic that you and I recall recruiting from, the 17 to 24-year-olds, were ineligible for service uh, because of, uh, again, failure to graduate, police record, obesity, couldn't pass the PT test, you name it. I decided uh, I had an interest in that. Uh, you also mentioned the fact that, I, you know, when I graduated from A and graduated with a master's degree in education. So as an educator, uh, this whole uh, appeal of the focus of mission readiness appealed to me at a broader level. And we'll talk about that as we go along. But seven out of 10 of the guys and gals you and I were chasing couldn't serve because of those three disqualifiers. So we need to do something about that.
1: It, that certainly was was the case i remember it well it makes the challenge of recruiting and it goes directly to the impact on national security which is certainly one of the the results that we're hoping to uh, change with with a long term uh, effort in this in this area so uh, people don't think about necessarily because i think in, in socia- our society we are more of a short term uh, we take short-term outlook to things. I think legislature and Congress tend to think uh, about a short-term payback with a lot of initiatives, and this is a long-term effort to uh, to reach the results that we're looking for here. Ben, why why the focus on childhood education? What what really is behind all of that in getting us to where we want to be? Not only with military recruiting, but those other benefits of successful early childhood education and childcare?
0: Well, you're, you know, you're, you, you said it perfectly there, sir. You know, um, this is, this is a long-term uh, fight here and mission readiness has been around for about 11 years and many of the national trends we've, we've warned and our members have warned have set are going to get worse. Um, you know, we're, we're starting to already see some of those consequences. So to, to, to turn the, the ship around, um, you know, legislators and lawmakers policymakers, need to be thinking about the long term. And while there's no silver bullet that can mitigate those barriers that I listed to, to enlistment, um, obesity, education, record of crime or drug abuse. Um, there is, um, something that we can turn to and that's, you know, research overwhelmingly shows that high quality early education and care programs can create a stronger educational foundation. Um, you know, they prepare kids for um, for, for success, uh, prepare them for for future social, emotional, and, and cognitive learning uh, success. Um, but the research shows that that those programs, the successful ones, can even prevent obesity, um, teach good habits early. And we know if a kid does better in school, they're less likely to, to, to turn to crime. Um, and, you know, we, we can get into the research here and, and talk about why we know that these these programs are so effective. But if we're looking at a cost effective way um, to, to prepare our kids for success, strengthen our national security, and strengthen our future workforce, um, early childhood education is is probably the best ROI um, that where where lawmakers uh, can 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 put their dollars, put our dollars.
1: And we all I'm sure we all have some anecdotal Stories and, and evidence. Uh, my sister was a kindergarten teacher, just retired last year after 26 years as a kindergarten teacher, and she's seen uh, she through that. Uh, particularly the last 15 years, she's seen a change in. And I wouldn't call it the preparedness, but some of the kids uh, coming to school with maybe maybe aren't quite ready for some of the uh, the. Uh, elements uh, that they expected to to have when they come to kindergarten. And we know that uh, we have dual-income parents. Uh, this is a long ways away from when, when I was a kid, uh, probably when Bill was a kid, uh, you had more single parents uh, working, uh, one parent working, one parent at home. We have many parents now a large portion of these families have both parents working, so child care and early childhood education is certainly key and bill you you have some experience you've you've uh, got a family got grandkids uh, how do you see this impacting from your perspective?
2: well you know first of all i I would shy Ben for a bit uh Using the analogy turn the ship around when talking to a couple of retired army guys
1: <laughs> is uh,
2: a lousy way to characterize this thing. You know, above face might be a better way to turn look the at
1: tank this. around, right? Or turn, <laughs> turn the helicopter, around.
2: yeah. You, you know, I uh, you're, you're right. I mean, uh, I grew up in a household where my mother was home all the time, my dad went to work. Uh, that was not the way we raised our children, both Cindy and I worked, and uh, that's not the way our grandchildren are being raised. Uh, Both parents are in the workforce, so uh, things have changed. But, you know, one of the things that I learned as a parent, and I also learned uh, as an educator, uh, is, you know, there's scientific evidence, uh, evidence that brain development uh, from birth to age five is the critical time Uh, for setting a foundation for kids' future success. And, uh, you know, that struck me in my first conversation with Kim as I went beyond that demographic of 17 to 24 that I was really worried about, uh, that what we're really doing is we're talking about uh, the development of young children between the age of zero and five, which is the critical time, uh, to set the foundation for future success. And that's what really attracted me about the program. Um, and uh, as I said, as an educator, I know that this is true. The scientific data supports this. Uh, and I think that's the importance. And it's it's not about recruiting young men and women for the guard, or the reserves, or active duty. It's about preparing young men and women for future success in whatever avocation they choose to pursue
1: that's a great point this is not just some theory or some feeling it is based on on solid research solid data that uh, i think you both have, have seen and ben can you talk a little bit more about the data out there maybe just just a couple examples
0: Absolutely. You know, uh, there there are a few major studies that that we've looked at and we've got a a research team um, in-house based in Washington that continues to review all the studies that come out. But, you know, what what I found most compelling when when I first started to dive into this data is, you know, a a long term investigation of a a program out in Michigan tracked two groups of kids in a controlled study. Um, Children who participated in the program were 44 percent more likely to graduate from high school than kids left out of the program. 44% 44% more likely. Um, another study of, a, of a, a Chicago-based program showed that kids who did not participate in the program, the kids left out, were 70% more likely to be arrested for a violent crime by the time they turned 18, 70%. Um, you know, so, so you think about what's the best way that we can ensure kids are more successful in school and, and help to ensure that they don't fall into crime Um, We know those things are interrelated, but I mean, um, uh, you know, I would I would if if anybody else out there has seen more compelling more compelling data for 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 another initiative, um, you know, I'd love to see it because this this is pretty staggering. And then I just say, you know, as I mentioned, we're concerned about growing rates of obesity, which now disqualify one in three young Americans from service alone and and. You know the studies continue to come in, but um, these programs that serve nutritious food, increase physical activity among uh, among their their kids, and help coach parents on these topics saw so declines in child obesity as as much as twenty four percent. So again, no silver bullet, but but these programs are pretty close. And
1: yeah, that's the that's the kind of data that. That's the information that we're going to need and, and the need to will continue if we're going to convince the legislature, Congress, they want to see data, and the more we have, certainly, the better the case will be made for the funding and the resources needed for this. Uh, definitely, that needs to continue. And I'm sure that more people that become aware of what what the, the research shows, the more people we can convince to get on board with this. Let's talk about Maine in particular. And as we shift to to not only early child child care education, but also child care itself, there's a significant problem and and a significant gap uh, in good early child care opportunities and availability in the state of Maine. And I'm just going to read from... Uh, The study that I know you both have seen, uh, the early childhood program scarcity, uh, the title of of it is Early Childhood Program Scarcity Undermines Maine's Rural Communities. It was put together by the Strong uh, Nation uh, Council for a Strong America, as you mentioned earlier. But just one paragraph at the beginning talks about child poverty in rural Maine is more severe than in non-rural areas of the state. Overall, nearly one-quarter of rural children in Maine live in poverty, and at the same time, children in rural communities often lack resources and supports, including quality early childhood, childhood care and education, which, as we've said, research shows can strengthen the current and future workforce, contribute to a strong economy, public safety, and, as Bill mentioned, enhance national security in the long run. Let's let's go there for a little bit of the discussion now and talk about the rural nature of Maine and and poverty in Maine. Uh, Bill, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you understand about uh, how difficult it is to to have quality child care in rural Maine?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And l- let me start by saying this, Rob. Uh, child early, uh, you know, child is early childhood education. Uh, the cognitive, social, and emotional development that occurs in a child care setting is early childhood education. So I don't want to separate the two, although there's a tendency to want to do that. Uh, but with regard to uh, to Maine, uh, we've got a number of issues. And we've talked about the poverty issue and the difference between the poverty rates in the rural community versus the urban community. Oh, by the way, the 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 Census Bureau defines a rural area as one that has less than twenty five hundred people, which describes Maine, with the exception of a few places. So, Maine is clearly a rural state. Um, the, uh, in addition to uh, being rural, uh, we've had some significant problems in the state with regard to declines in population and employment, and uh, unfortunately, those are occurring. In the same six counties in Maine, which are rural counties, uh, population loss and the loss of employment in those communities results in the decrease of services such as healthcare, hospital closings. And again, seven of the eight hospitals in Maine that are suffering financially right now are in those six rural counties within the state. So it presents a real challenge to us Uh, to uh, place our focus where it needs to be, uh, which is in rural Maine. Uh, I'm going to get a little bit ahead of where we want to be, but I want to talk about a program that has really caught my attention. Um, Coastal Enterprises, Inc., out of Brunswick, uh, an organization that uh, applies for and receives a lot of federal grants, uh, is uh, an organization that's taking a look at the child care desert as we refer to it uh, areas where child care isn't available and they've launched a child care business lab it's a five-year program which started in february and the intention of the program is to grow child care in rural areas by educating entrepreneurs who want to be child care providers Uh, and they provide them with a curriculum that includes uh child care business knowledge uh, provide some access to capital, uh, increased business acumen, uh, and uh, achieving and maintaining financial stability uh, is the curriculum they're developing. So what they've set about doing out of coastal enterprises in Brunswick, Maine, in our rural community in our rural counties throughout the state, is developing entrepreneurs who want to start childcare business. And that's a perfect example. Of how we can attack this thing at the local level with the appropriate level of federal funding, uh, and I think it's uh, it characterizes for me the way forward. The solution to this problem, in Billie's opinion, is not at the federal level; it's at the local level.
1: That's a great example. Incubators like those are are, are exactly what we need to to show the value and the benefit uh, of these programs and what they can do in the long term. And as I mentioned earlier, I think one of our problems, it it, it goes back to, I think, uh, when the Japanese started to take over in the early 70s with the the quality in production and all the things that they had a longer view about how to get things done, where we were focused on more of the short-term profit and, and gain. And I think that's the mindset we have to take with these programs is to just to look long term if we're if we're going to be successful and and ben talk a little bit more about the rural nature of of maine and how that impacts our ability to successfully provide child care opportunities
0: absolutely well you know maine absolutely as general Libby said clearly rural it, it in fact You know, if you look at Census Bureau data, Maine is considered to be the most rural state in the nation because more than 60 percent of Mainers live in rural areas. Um, You know, and and the challenge is, right, children in those areas, we know, um, face a a significantly uh, higher rate of poverty than in more populated areas of the state. Um, You know, we think about, um, as General Libby mentioned, job loss, manufacturing loss over the the last few decades. Um, So, problem, right, um, typically in a lot of these rural areas, folks tend to rely on family child care providers. That's certainly what my parents used when I, when I was growing up in York County. Um, but availability has dropped by almost 30 percent in the last few years. So as a result, you know, more than one in five, uh, you know, Mainers live in a child care desert where there are more than three children under five for each licensed child care slot. And in rural communities, um, it's it's 26 percent. More than one in four live in in, in one of those deserts. Um, so then you layer on how challenging and more complicated, um, and, and the other um, parameters around infant care, and this becomes an issue for working working families. And you know, we can get into kind of some of the consequences of of the pandemic and so forth. But um, you know. Maine faces, in addition to challenging challenges in finding available slots and, and places where working families can, can send their kids during the day, Maine faces some pretty um, serious challenges to workforce retention, um, attracting qualified providers who, who, who want to open their doors or, or who want to go to work, um, uh, you know, um, who aren't attracted to, to, to go doing something else. So, again, this is something where all the research shows us this is where we should be putting our effort and our emphasis to prepare kids for success, um, but our infrastructure just um, isn't isn't where it needs to be.
1: And there are there are, as you mentioned, there are studies out there that show that the return on investment is about a five times as much as the investment uh, going in. Uh, certainly a benefit in the long run. As I mentioned earlier, we have dual parents working now. About two thirds or sixty six percent of Main children under the age of six have all available parents in the workforce, and of main children age under age six with working parents with low incomes almost half forty four percent live in a non metro or a world where rural area excuse me so it you can see how that easily see how that contributes to a major problem and and we're going to get in a few minutes here to. The difficulty in attracting uh, qualified child care workers based on a number of factors, and i'll I'll be asking you what what you consider those to be. Let's talk, you mentioned the pandemic. What challenges uh, have the pandemic caused from your perspective, uh, Ben or bill, uh, on on child care issues uh, over the last year? Well, it, it,
0: you know the pandemic has has really disproportionately affected early education and care. Um, across the nation, but, but in, in Maine in particular, um, you know, let's face it, all businesses have faced incredible challenges with social distancing requirements. And the last year has, has been a nightmare for, for anybody who, who runs a business, um, who, who, um, you know, manages, who works at anybody, anybody who's, who's, who has not had been fortunate enough to, 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 work from home, um, you know, has faced a, a nightmare every day. But space requirements in these businesses have meant, um, uh, uh, or space requirements when it comes to child care has meant fewer slots are available. And fewer children in care mean less revenue. Um, you know, a problem already was that child care teachers in Maine make an average of twelve eighty nine an hour. So when an early educator can make that much or more taking a job at Dunkin' Donuts or Amato's. Um, you know, retention uh, was already a problem prior to COVID, but closures have meant that some of these these educators have left the workforce for other jobs, um, understandably. Um, but they're not returning, and so the child care workforce in Maine is losing teachers quickly, but not attracting new ones. Um, so this obviously has a huge impact on the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. Kids who are prepared, um, you know, but, but aside from just stabilizing this workforce, right, there's another huge issue. Working parents rely on a safe place to send their kids during the day. So when we talk about trying to get our economy back to where it was pre-COVID, um, you know, it's we're, we're talking both about the benefits, but also a linchpin of the economy that, that working families in Maine uh, rely on. So COVID has made the situation a lot more complicated, um, but it's it's it, it's exposed existing gaps in the system, made it a whole lot worse. Um, but the need for, for a real systemic overhaul here um, it r- remains urgent.
1: And we, Bill, maybe you can talk as a former educator, you could talk about the difference between uh, a child care worker who is actually trained and, and has the ability to educate as part of that role versus somebody that is, quote, taking care of, of the kids. We, we mentioned sometimes uh, in, in the state of Maine in particular, family child care is, is is what's available to a lot of people because of the rural nature. Could you speak to that a, a little bit?
2: Yeah, If you go back to the example that I was using with regard to coastal enterprises and the child care, child care laboratory, uh, what they're doing is they're taking uh, you know, people who have an avocation toward children clearly, uh, and uh, training them to uh, to be more than simply uh, care providers to provide an environment where uh, cognitive development and learning can take place. That's not the primary role of childcare, but uh, it certainly is a side benefit if you've got somebody who's uh, who's trained and focused in that way. I, you know, as Ben was talking, it. It reminded me of my own family situation uh, and the pandemic. And I'd point out two examples to you. My oldest son, who's got three uh, grade school children, uh, and is a Google employee in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has been working from home since the pandemic started. His wife is a former high school guidance counselor. And their three kids were being homeschooled because uh, in their area of Massachusetts until very recently, Uh, You know, kids were uh, learning remotely. Uh, They were very fortunate in that, uh, you know, he could set up an office at home and work and she could handle the children uh, as it relates to providing them the uh, oversight supervision uh, that they needed for remote learning, which for, you know, (laughs) a pre-K kid uh, and a fifth grader uh, are uh, something that... uh, I'm not sure how I could deal with, but they were fortunate in the event that both of them were forced to work, even if they were forced to work from home and the children were being homeschooled, that presents a a real difficult situation. Uh, Contrary to that, uh, you know, my youngest son, he and his wife are both employed, both continued to work in their professions, uh, but they had a high school age uh, daughter who was remotely learning for a greater part of the past year and being left at home alone. The good news is she was in high school, uh, could take care of herself. Uh, but again, uh, you get a sense of the problems that occur if, in fact, this was uh, someone who couldn't fend for themselves at 16 years old, but rather you had a six-year-old. So uh, the pandemic created all kinds of issues for all different people. Uh, but the good news is out of the pandemic came a number of uh, innovative solutions, which were applying to everything from... Uh, working remotely from home to uh, Zoom conferencing for Bill Libby to participate in the organizations he still wants to be involved in in Maine.
1: It certainly has. We've experienced it uh, in my my work with, with Maine Savings Federal Credit Union. We We've dealt with the child care issues. Thankfully, we had great support from the relief bills that were passed. But it, it certainly has revolutionized the way work is getting done. And I, I one of the things I want to mention is is that I think people may have a misperception in some cases that remote work also includes the ability to take care of your children. And, and that's a myth that we all need to dispel for folks because uh, it, it certainly doesn't mean that and it doesn't lessen the need for quality child care. One of the things that I I mentioned when I mentioned uh, my sister was a kindergarten teacher, she has indicated the last couple of years, and she was in an area where Head Start was prevalent and pre-K was available. Uh, Ben, can you talk about Head Start and pre-K and how that correlates in Maine to uh, the child care issue and and how far we need to go with with that aspect of it, if you're able? Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, I, I, I think we know over the years that, that the research again shows that um, this this patchwork of programs, multitude of programs, just pre- prepares kids for for all the outcomes um, that that we're talking about and, and and parents rely on. But you know, when we talk about Maine, um, you know, I think that there are a few. Opportunities on the table right now where, where legislators and lawmakers can, can really come together, um, to, to strengthen some of the issues that, that we've talked about today, both in, in access and some of these structural pay issues. Um, you know, the first is that Speaker Facto was sponsored a bill that, that aims to address, um, some of the structural pay issues that that we mentioned and create career career development and training opportunities for early educators. Um, Senate President Troy Jackson has proposed a a first for for Maine bill, which focuses on leveraging community partnerships um, to to address quality and and access issues. And from my understanding, really looks at, 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 you know, and start partnerships, and 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 the model, and so forth. Um, and Governor Mills has has really, you know, communicated that she sees this as a critical priority too. Um, her ten-year economic plan and her economic recovery committee have identified um, child care and 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 early education as a long-term priority. So, the the good news here is that legislative leadership in Maine understands that um, this. Broad issue is a priority, and thanks to the work of Maine's Mission Readiness members, uh, law enforcement leaders from Fight Crime Invest in Kids, Ready Nation business leaders over the years, legislators in Augusta understand that investing in all of these models is is really critical for our future strength. Um, So however legislators come together, um, Maine needs to strengthen the childhood workforce by increasing compensation and benefits, strengthening training pathways, and um, you know, responsibly supporting efforts to to really address some of the gaps in rural areas. Um, it's also worth noting, as as you alluded to, you know, Maine is set to receive 118 million dollars in child care assistance under the recent American Rescue Plan Act, and that's that's really significant. Um, we're hopeful as an organization that Governor Mills will use some of that funding to both invest in the child care workforce and in expanding available slots, um, in addition to supporting the programs that are already really operating with significant losses due to the the pandemic.
1: That's great news. And and it's great to hear some very positive news in this area. Bill had mentioned the Coastal Enterprises Initiative. There's also Elevate Maine Initiative in Somerset County that is a private uh, public partnership between the Maine Early Learning Investment Group and Educare central Maine. Uh, so we do have a lot of uh, great things going, and, and certainly it's going to be uh, up to folks like yourselves, um, me, and, and others to continue to to push. Uh, we've got some great organizations that are doing that. We talked about the long-term in, impact on the economy, reduction in crime, the expansion of the pool of candidates for military service. Those are just, those are, that's like the low-hanging fruit that sticks out there for the benefits, but there are societal benefits that certainly go uh, far beyond just to those that were mentioned. Bill, as a as a former adjutant general commissioner for uh, Governor LePage, Governor Baldacci, you've had a lot of experience with the legislature. What would you say to our legislative leaders, either at the state or national level, regarding this issue? If you were trying to uh, maybe an elevator speech or motivate them in some way to take action.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm chuckling because you said elevator speech, and that's exactly what I was going to say. you know if I could trap any or all of them in an elevator, boy, there are four points I would make with them uh, immediately uh, with regard to this discussion. You know number one, uh, we've got to help families find and acquire affordable and high quality child care child care period. Number two, uh, we have got to support initiatives to expand preschool education. Uh, with an emphasis on main rural areas. Uh, number three, uh, we got to recruit, develop, and retain the early childhood workforce. Uh, and Ben mentioned this by increasing compensation and benefits. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about teacher salaries compared to other things, or whether we're talking about childcare workers compared to McDonald's workers. The fact of the matter is we somehow in this nation want to turn our back on the people that are most important to the development of our kids and the development of our future. And I, I don't understand that. I never will. So that increasing compensation benefits would have been my third talking point in the elevator. And my final one would be uh, legislators need to consider innovative delivery models. And we talked about a number of them today with Coastal Enterprises, Elevate Maine, We got a lot of sharp people out there at a local level, just as uh, Mission Readiness became part of a a greater organization uh, that had similar focuses at the local level. We've got a number of organizations working on uh, uh, early childhood education, child care, uh, child development, and uh, there are some... uh, innovative delivery models that are being developed out there and we need to support those. So those been my four talking points in the elevator, right?
1: You've convinced me, sir. I'm on board. <laughs> great, great thoughts. And Ben, can you add anything to that?
0: I think he, I, you know, I, there's nobody I would rather be in, in Augusta with than General Libby. I think I think I'm sold, and and uh, I think we need to <laughs> need to get him up there uh, uh, as, as soon as possible.
1: I agree totally. <laughs> I agree totally. Well, I, we could probably go on for uh, another hour. This is such a uh, important topic, such a uh, intense and. And a very very comprehensive topic, but uh, I know we're limited in time, and and I, I want to thank you both. Uh, I, I just want to read the conclusion from that uh, report uh, on early uh, childhood education. Their conclusion was high-quality early childhood care and education programs can help ameliorate the challenges faced by Maine children living in rural communities. These programs also strengthen the current and future workforce, contribute to a strong economy and public safety, and enhance national security in the long run. Maine policymakers must support tailored investments for young children in rural communities to help ensure the future strength of our state. So I think that was very well Summarized in that report, and I urge people to to take a look at that and anything else they can find on this uh, really important topic. Well, yeah, one
2: final thought, Rob. Yes, you know, I, I would say, hey, you know, better outcomes for kids equals better outcomes for
1: Maine. Absolutely, and you expand that to the nation. This is this is something that's going on throughout the nation. We have a particular. Uh, focus on Maine and need from for Maine. But these are the, the types of things that can help us, uh, whether it's national security or reducing crime, all of those things nationwide, hopefully in the long term. Ben, any last thoughts?
0: Well, uh, thank you again for the opportunity to join you today. And I would just tell anybody who's interested can log on to strongnation.org um, for, for Council for a Strong America. They can find that report that, that you mentioned, as well as um other mission readiness research reports and our own podcast series where we've had uh, conversations with um, folks like uh, former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, Richard Myers and Admiral uh, James DeVridis in the last few months about these very issues. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, general Libby said it, said it perfectly, um, you know, um, but at the end of the day, this is about our national security. It's, it's, it's critical. It's addressing a readiness issue, but um, again, you um, You know, the military, private industry, academia, they're all competing right now for the same uh, less than 30 percent of Maine kids who are uh, who could could meet that basic bar to 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 enlist. And so growing that recruitment pool is going to be better for all corners of, of, of the state and all corners of the country.
1: Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I did forget to mention that I am a proud member of Mission Readiness. I don't remember exactly how many years I've been uh, part of this group, but very happy to be part of such an important uh, organization. Well, this has been Rob Carmichael with another podcast, Mainly Matters. Look forward to sharing with you another podcast coming up in the very near future. Take care.
0: Thanks so much to the folks at Mainly Matters for allowing us to rebroadcast today's episode featuring Major General Bill Libby and Brigadier General Rob Carmichael of Mission Readiness. For more on Mainly Matters, visit Mainly Matters, spelled like the state, M-A-I-N-E-L-Y, matters.com. I'm Ben Goodman, and this has been the Mission Readiness Podcast. For more about Mission Readiness, Council for a Strong America, or to find an archive of every episode of the Mission Readiness podcast, visit strongnation.org. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast, give us a positive review, and tell all your friends about the program. The program is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. For now, this is Ben Goodman wishing you a safe and meaningful Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you soon.